ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcast everywhere. Acast.com. The system is adjusting to Trump. And during his, his first trip to NATO and the G7, I think everybody was in shock. This time, they did their homework, they prepared, and they just have decided to get on with life. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, executive editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington, D.C. today, and I'm joined in the studio by Charles Kupchin and Jenna McLaughlin. Dr. Kupchin is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's also a professor of international affairs in the Walsh School of Foreign Service and Department of Government at Georgetown University. Jenna is an intelligence reporter here at Foreign Policy, focusing on the culture, dynamics, and events happening in the National Security Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the other 15 members of the intelligence community. And joining us via Skype from Boston is Daniel Dresner, a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and the author of a new book, The Ideas Industry, How Pessimists, Partisans, and Plutocrats Are Transforming the Marketplace of Ideas. We're here today to talk about the G20 meeting and wanted to start off talking about what I think is the most fascinating thing that um, Jen and I were just talking about earlier, the video that President Donald Trump posted on his Twitter feed. And our first question was, where did the music come from? Right. So we actually spent part of our morning looking into this just because a lot of us didn't even click on the tweet at first and realize that there was a song that accompanied it. And it's it's just fantastic. Has everyone heard this? Did you? Oh, okay. Well, we'll we'll describe it it in a second. We'll get to it. Um, But essentially, this was pulled from... I mean, it's a montage. It is a montage. Of, of, it's of a video, scenes from the G20. From G20. But the music is from the First Baptist Church in Dallas, and it was written by the church's former minister of music, Gary Moore. And the song pretty much sounds like them saying Make America Great Again repeatedly, but there are actually more lyrics. Read them um, to us, please. <laughs> so there are three different verses, but I'll, I'll pick the, I'll read the first one. Um, so they say, make America great again, make America great again. Lift the torch of freedom all across the land. Step into the future joining hand in hand and make America great again. Yes, make America great again. <laughs> <laughs> and it concludes with lyrics about mighty eagles and soaring and various things like that. Um, so if you, if you haven't seen that video, it's pretty fabulous. Dan, Dan you're laughing. What, what is, what? I'm sorry. It's, you know, it's like there's nothing hotter than a G20 montage. I mean, that, that's, that's hot. But Come on, add, Dan. Be, be add, kind. If you add church music to it, then that really, like, lifts it up further. That's just – it's an impressive – 
display of, of North Korean level propaganda. Okay, okay. On a um, a somewhat more serious note, Charles, before before the um, the meeting, you had talked about, you said the G20 agenda is set for some uncomfortable conversations. Um, you wrote it will be dominated by climate change, free trade, immigration, and these are the issues where Trump is more or less alone. I mean, what, what came out? I mean, did, did things go pretty much as you thought? Were there these uncomfortable conversations? And did anything surprise you? Generally went uh, as I thought. You know, this was Donald Trump's second bite at the apple in the sense that he went to Europe about a month ago to a NATO meeting and a G7 meeting, and it was pretty much a bust. Uh, Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, after that first trip, goes home and says, hey, we can't rely on the, the, our friends like we used to. Europe has to take things into its own hands. And then he tries again uh, over the last four or five days. I think the, the visit to Poland was... Uh, to some extent a success in the, in the sense that he has a government there that is more pro-Trump, uh, that is nationalist and populist leaning. And, and as a consequence, I think he felt comfortable there. But at the G20, he was the odd man out. He was the only one who wouldn't endorse the Paris Climate Agreement. He put some language in there about fossil fuels that I guess everyone else had to swallow, but they weren't happy about it. He put some language in there that was quietly anti-free trade, uh, defensive instruments uh, on, on uh, trade. So uh, essentially, he did nothing to repair the damage that he did during his first trip. Uh, on the contrary, I think he comes back from the G20 with, uh, with the United States more isolated than it has been maybe since World War II, but certainly since uh, the, uh, the George W. Bush invasion of Iraq. Well, this is what I was interested in. You know, Trump likes to claim successes and deals, and he could come out of something like the NATO summit and say, I negotiated a deal for increased defense spending. He wanted to come out of Israel saying, I, you know, started negotiations. What what did he hope to come out of the G20 with, do you think? What would have been success in his mind? Well, I think that success in his mind is to some extent what he got, which is to rankle people. And to be able to say to his base, I challenged the establishment. I'm rolling back a globalized system that hasn't worked to your advantage. People reacted angrily to me. Uh, that's his political brand. So unfortunately, what those of us who are in the foreign policy establishment think is a, uh, a serious setback for the country and for the world, he tends to see as a success because he has... He has sort of made his political brand this idea of challenging the status quo, of challenging the conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. Dan, you talked about how, how coming out of it, you know, the rest of the world is growing inert to, to Trump's America's first strategy. It does seem like people are learning how to deal with Trump. I mean, what did you see that was significant in how other leaders dealt with Trump there? Well, I would say there were two things that were significant. Um, I, I think Charles is right to sort of compare and contrast this summit to uh, Trump's last European trip, where... I think you could argue the reaction from a lot of the Europeans was was deep and, and serious consternation about the way Trump had behaved. And it's not that they're any less disturbed by it now. I think what they have done, however, is adjusted to it. And so in the way they've adjusted to it essentially is to take any agenda setting power that Trump had or that the United States had in, in G20 summits. And they used to have a lot of agenda setting power. Um, and basically go on their own. So what, what's telling to me, I think, is not so much what just happened in the G20 summit alone, but what happened in the days running up to it, which is first, 
the European Union and Japan announced um, a free trade agreement, or at least the, the outlines of a free trade agreement that they're going to negotiate, um, suggesting that they don't really care now if the United States does things like withdrawing from the TPP or um, enacts other protectionist measures. They're going to go ahead with their own trade policies. Uh, the other thing that was eyebrow-raising was the fact that China and Russia issued a joint statement uh, on July 4th in response to the North Korean um, ICBM launch, uh, in, which made it clear that they were on much closer terms in terms of the approach to North Korea than the United States was with either of those countries. The one thing that, that presumably Trump could claim, and, and this is consistent, to be fair, with how he has thought about foreign policy, is he generally eschews multilateral arrangements and favors bilateral ones. Um, you could argue that that's been his consistent preference with respect to trade, and it seems to be his consistent preference in terms of dealing with foreign leaders. He prefers bilats um, to these sort of multilateral summits. But it's not like the bilats got him that much. Um, you know, the one with Xi Jinping really didn't generate that much. It, it was uh, purely a PR exercise. And the one with Putin, I would argue, was catastrophic for him in the end, in the sense of he he came away saying, yes, you know, we, we talked about the election, but that's in the past. We don't have to worry about that, which no one buys. He claimed that there was a Syrian ceasefire, which uh, did hold, I believe, for a whopping 12 hours. And the most important was this insane claim that they had agreed to create, I believe his tweet said, an impenetrable cyber defense unit, um, which he himself, eight hours later, walked away from via Twitter, which was, is really extraordinary. I can only imagine what the Russians are thinking on this. So, yeah, I wasn't impressed with how this summit went for him. Janet, let's talk about the impenetrable <laughs> cyber defense unit and its, it's very short life. What, yes. what, I mean, is there any precedent for something like that? Um, so, I mean, that even just the name impenetrable cybersecurity <laughs> unit is just completely an oxymoron. Um, I mean, I've heard from some of the pe top people in the name, private sector. The yeah, that it's it's a good band name. It's joke. A good band you name. see that on Twitter everywhere. Yeah. Um, the intelligence community, the government, uh, no true expert on cybersecurity actually thinks that cyber defense is anywhere near impenetrable now or kind of anywhere in the near future. So that concept is just completely ridiculous. And he, he walked into this meeting already saying that, you know, he wasn't sure about the concept of Russia meddling in the election. He had already kind of cut himself off at the knees at that point. He goes in wanting to kind of make this cyber deal. Um, and that really angered a lot of people. Senator Lindsey Graham came out and said, you know, this isn't the dumbest idea I've ever heard, but it's pretty close. You see Ash Carter reacting in a similar way, saying, you know, you, this is like you making a deal with somebody that kind of robbed you, essentially. So I, I think the major outrage was not necessarily kind of about the idea of partnering on the idea of cybersecurity with Russia. It was more that we were giving them this partnership despite their bad behavior. Um, and I think that that's fair and it's a good political po talking point. Um, but in addition to that, you did know. Did it come out of anything? I mean, did some staff member say? Or I'm not Putin sure. Said this would be a great idea. I kind of doubt somebody like Rob Joyce would be like, hey, we should talk about this public cybersecurity information sharing whatever thing with Russia. 
Um, but somebody must have cooked it up. Somebody right? must have. I mean, there were very um, few and, people and, in that meeting, and I'm guessing that someone, either in the White House or on Tillerson's staff, called someone in the Kremlin really and <laughs> said, hey, we need something out of this meeting. How about right. this cybersecurity thing, and let's call a ceasefire in a little corner of southwest Syria. Right. I, Full I stop. I want to push back on this. I do not think there was any advanced coordination on oh, this. Oh, you yeah, think this I, just I came like out of Trump's mind? <laughs> Trump's I, 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 experts are I, not that yeah. dumb on cybersecurity, oh. honestly, as much as you'd like to think that, uh, you know, a lot or, of this stuff comes out of nowhere. Or do, I mean, could Putin have suggested it? I mean, <laughs> I think that's that possible. My, that's what I assumed. I, I assumed definitely think that that's possible. Yeah, and, I mean... I, you know, Sorry, some, something like this could be something incredibly benign, too, that Trump misunderstood. It could be something like um, kind of out of CISA, the Cyber Information Sharing Act, where you just share threat indicators and say, you know, we're tracking these criminals, that sort of thing. And that's something that kind of already happens. And it's it's not uh, classified. It's not secret. Um, I wrote about that in a story that I did a couple months ago, and that program kind of was going to be completely warped to say that we were sharing this classified information with Russia, when in reality, some of these cybersecurity things are, are a lot simpler than that. Um, but then why, why walk it back uh, hours later? Is it just that he was surprised by how much criticism? I think so. <laughs> I mean, the president, regardless of what he says about the stupid media and people criticizing him, he, he cares about that. He, he has to care about that. So I, I, I'm sort of fascinated by, by the optics of these meetings. So am I the only one to ask, when Trump left the conference room, was it really that unusual for Ivanka to sit in his chair? I mean, there was a lot of outrage on that. I, I have no idea. Well, the way these, these summits work, uh, and it's not just the G20, it's NATO, it's the G7. Everybody sits around the table. The principal is at the table. Sitting behind the principal is usually two, three, four staff, depending on how many seats you get. And every once in a while, the principal has to go to the bathroom, has to go take a phone call, has to go to a meeting, and someone takes the seat. I think what, that, that what is so unusual about this is that it wasn't the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State or the National Security Advisor who took the chair. It was the president's daughter. Uh, yes, she is uh, uh, in the White House. She's a staff member. She has the confidence of the president. But I do think that f from an optical uh, perspective, it was very strange to see the president's daughter fill in for the president rather than a member of the cabinet. But so who would it have normally have been like under Obama who would have uh, taken that seat at the table? At a summit like that, it would have either been Susan Rice or John Kerry, probably John Kerry. And if he were not in the room then it would have been Susan Rice. G20 usually is not attended by the Secretary of Defense. Therefore, Ash Carter would unlikely to have been there. Dan, your thoughts? No, this is, I, I agree with everything that Charles said. Normally what would happen, I mean, it, it, there was a lot of odd things on Twitter about, oh my God, this is totally unprecedented that, that an unelected official would sit in on um, in that moment. But that's actually relatively, it's not common, but when the, the principal leaves, you know, there is a case where you'd either have the National Security Advisor or Secretary of State sit in. I, I will say I once, when I worked at Treasury, um, went to a much lower level meeting uh, at, uh, at the OECD and was one of the staffers sitting behind. And I remember there was a brief moment where my principal got up. And so I was told, just sit there, you know, and take his place. And that was one of the more petrifying five minutes of my life, um, because it meant that if anyone asked the United States something in that moment, I was the one who was supposed to answer. Um, and I did not want that responsibility whatsoever at that moment. Um, but uh, yeah, I agree with Charles. What, what's telling to me is not just that the optics were bad, but that even Ivanka wasn't aware 
or seemingly was not aware that this was going to be a thing. Um, and and I, I'm amused that all of this started, by the way, if I understand it correctly, from a photograph that the Russian G20 Sherpa snapped as she sat down and then posted on Twitter, and then it went viral, and then she took the photograph. That's I didn't know that. That's amazing. <laughs> that was how, I, yeah, I mean, I, when I woke up Sunday morning, I saw this because that was the tweet that went around. It was this uh, woman, I, I apologize, I can't remember her name, but she tweeted the she tweeted the photo, and then two hours later deleted the photo. But then by that point, the story had already gone um, on the Post and Bloomberg and so on and so forth. And she just retweeted one of those stories. Yeah, I mean, it's funny how the optics of of Trump attending these meetings have have become so important in the pictures and people sort of analyzing the pictures from them and the meeting of them. Is there anything else that struck you out of the G20 in that sense? Speaking for myself, I mean, in some ways it was it was neither as bad nor as, uh, I guess, as good, I suppose, as the, the previous summit, um, the NATO summit. I mean, you didn't see anything like Trump shoving aside the, uh, <laughs> the, former, the, the leader of Montenegro so he could be in the, you know, and then like strutting like a peacock. Um, he seemed to genuinely be on slightly better personal terms with almost everyone in, involved. It wasn't quite that, the handshake from hell with Macron, for example, also didn't get replayed. On the other hand, frankly, it also seemed like very few people were necessarily all that interested in engaging with Trump either. You know, there were a lot of shots, at least in terms of the photos I saw, of just other G20 leaders talking to each other. And, you know, the optics of the, the sort of G20 photos, it's more like they they now know he's going to be in the room. They're not thrilled with it, but they also are not going to worry about engaging him either. I, I think, you know, one way to describe it is that we're we're sort of uh, the system is adjusting to Trump, and during his his first trip to NATO and the G7, I think everybody was in shock. This time they did their homework, they prepared, and as Dan said at the beginning of the show, they have decided to get on with life. They're going to do the Paris Agreement. They're going to do trade deals, uh, and they're going to say to the United States. Sorry that you can't join us, uh, but you know we can't sit around and wait. And I think that's the right the right way to go. You don't want to be vindictive. You don't want to anger Trump because that makes matters worse. And so the way they've handled it, I think, is fairly sophisticated. And I think it was a bold stroke that Macron invited Trump to come to Paris for Bastille Day, because that's a way of saying we may not agree with you. We're getting on with life without you but we're not going to put you in the penalty box. We're going to try to build a relationship with you and work with you whenever we can. So what does this say then about the whole McMaster op-ed of put, you know, America, putting America first doesn't mean that we don't have coalitions? Is that idea simply dead? I found yes. that, that op-ed to be shocking. Uh, and I'm not quite sure why those two guys published it because that is not where, where they've been throughout their careers. I mean, these guys are more in the mainstream. But I, th that's one of the reasons that I found the first trip much more disconcerting than this one. The first trip seemed to be the consolidation of a hard-right populist nationalist agenda encapsulated in that Wall Street Journal op-ed where it said, goodbye global community, goodbye the last 80 years of building institutions, of building trust, of reaching out to democratic allies. We're on our own now. Uh, and I think the rest of the world is, is sort of saying, well, if that's the way you want to do it, we're going to figure out how to get by without you. Right. Well, um, Dan, please, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I agree with Charles. That, that op-ed was actually incoherent. 
Um, and in some ways, I, I don't normally advocate for Straussian readings of, of documents like that. But I think that was McMaster and Cohen's attempt to somehow reconcile America first rhetoric with what has been their at least traditional sort of liberal internationalism. And, and the reason it was incoherent is, as it turns out, you can't reconcile these things. And as I wrote today for the Post, you know, they one of the, they, they explicitly said in that op-ed, America first does not mean America alone. And there is no way you can watch what happened at the G20 summit and conclude that statement is wrong. As it turns out, America first does equal America alone. The rest of the world is perfectly happy to go on uh, without the United States. They wouldn't, they'd prefer it be a different way. Um, but I, I agree with Charles. I think they're less shocked now um, about Trump than they were a, a month or two ago. And they realize, okay, this is the course we're going to go for. And it's worth noting, by the way, that by doing that, it's undercut whatever leverage Trump thinks he has on the rest of the world in terms of trying to somehow renegotiate deals that he doesn't like, I don't think there really is going to be that much in the way of concessions from other countries on these issues. You know, much was made out of the, um, you know, the, the Putin-Trump meeting, but we actually don't know that much of what came out of it. I mean, the one sort of tangible success should have been the limited ceasefire in southern Syria, but already that is not much of a success, it turns out. I mean, what, what were your thoughts on that? My first thought that it was, it was very strange how small the meeting was in the sense that it was two aside. And on the Russian side, you had about 80 years of experience <laughs> in the realm of dipl uh, high diplomacy. <laughs> and on the U.S. side, you had a few months. And so it, it really put Trump and Tillerson at a disadvantage. Yeah, you know, they're accomplished businessmen. But when it comes to understanding what's going on in Syria, the relationship between the Iraqi Kurds and the Syrian Kurds, between the, this opposition group and that opposition group, what's going on in eastern Ukraine, they're not going to have a clue. Uh, and Lavrov and Putin live and breathe this stuff. Uh, so it's, it's very strange to me that they did not have at least McMaster in the room and probably Fiona Hill, the, the senior director for Europe and, and Russia. It's very hard to, to know what went on. I mean, my my sense going into the meeting and my sense coming out of the meeting is that it was primarily a get-to-know-you kind of thing, that that both Putin and, uh, uh, and Trump are people who believe in, as Dan was saying, bilateral contacts, uh, building relationships with people. They're cut from the same cloth. They're both kind of nationalist, populist, strongmen who challenge the, the mainstream. So I think the best that we can hope for is that they now have a relationship where they can call each other on the phone and try to get some business done. I'm sort of curious. I have a process question. You know, if Obama in that same situation or any previous president had been meeting with, you know, their counterpart, um, with Putin or whomever, what would be – how would they be prepared for that? What staff members would brief them or what would be the normal process? The, I mean, just to give you an analogy, the last time – that Obama met Putin was at the G20 in China last year. It was a relatively small meeting. Uh, John Kerry was there, Susan Rice was there, and I was there. Uh, and you, he, you, we, we had a lot of papers prepared, and he went through, and we had the agenda. Uh, and, and the president wanted to speak to Putin privately, which is fine, which is what should and, – and so at the end of the meeting, he goes off into a corner with the interpreters, and they talk about whatever they want to talk about. But in general, you don't want to have a situation where the people in the room, especially in, in a conversation with the Russians, is so limited that the rest of the bureaucracy doesn't know what's going on. And in particular, the, the national security advisor is the person who, who was really coordinating U.S. foreign policy across the agencies. To have a meeting with Vladimir Putin where he's not present 
suggests to me either that Trump has very little confidence in him or that the system is so dysfunctional that, uh, that we ought to be really worried. Jenna, you've been doing some reporting on this lately, on the dysfunction of the system. What has happened with our Russian experts inside government? I mean, that's the thing is that they're being pushed aside and ignored. And honestly, for me, the the having three people in the meeting like that is just an ultimate fear of leaks, is trying to make sure that no snippet of information makes it outside of that room without Trump Tillerson knowing about it. Um, and I mean, there's just completely chaos there. Uh, the National Security Council experts um, that I've interviewed, people who have left, who have been there, have said that, you know, they kind of talk together in a room. They try to drum up kind of informal policy agreements. They communicate with the rest of the government, think they're they're getting some, some basic things done. But then no real meetings take place. Uh, Tillerson drops this three-point plan on how to deal with Russia, but none of the State Department even knew about that. Um, so there's kind of this sense that people at the highest levels might be talking to each other, um, but that the staff just is completely left in the dark. So, Dan, what, what next for Trump? I mean, now that world leaders are kind of learning to adjust to this reality, um, what would you look for in sort of upcoming meetings or summits? Well, what you might see is... First of all, I think we we can say one thing, which is we've seen now a pattern from his last two, from his first two overseas trips, which is not entirely unreasonable, but but it's the notion that essentially if he's going to a multilateral summit, uh, the first thing he's going to do is go to a country where he can guarantee a friendly reception. Um, so we saw that in the the first trip where he starts off with Saudi Arabia, and then the trip sort of goes downhill from there as he goes from Israel, then to Rome, and then to the the NATO summit. Um, and similarly with this trip where he started off in Warsaw and gave a speech that was controversial, but at least actually got some genuine praise from from some quarters um, and a decent reception, at least from the bust in crowd, and then to the, the, the G20 summit. So if he goes on these trips, clearly his staff is going to try to arrange for him to get this kind of, of you know, nice optic. Um, the second thing that I suspect, and again, this has been consistent with him, you know, uh, for during the campaign as well as his first six months, is that he 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 will go to these multilateral meetings because he has to, but he pr- much prefers bilateral summits. And if he does do bilateral summits, my guess is he's going to prefer most of them to be in the United States, potentially in Mar-a-Lago or some other golf course that he owns, um, as opposed to the White House. Uh, so. You know, it it won't shock me if you see more of a pivot towards security issues, particularly, um, I would assume, terrorism, because that is actually the one area where you can argue the rest of the world legitimately needs the United States. It's telling in some ways that the G20 is about economics and the environment. And there was a reason, therefore, why the United States seemed marginalized. The U.S. doesn't quite as much power in those areas as it used to, whereas in on security issues, the U.S. is still in many ways the hegemon. So. Other countries do want to, you know, potentially have some some dealings with it in that area. I would I would just add that I'd keep my eye on the trade agenda, because on NATO security troops in Europe, Ukraine, Trump's base doesn't care that much about it. Uh, on climate change, Trump was someone who said as a candidate, "I'm going to do something about this." This advantage this advantages small business people, and he pulled out. Right now, uh, we don't know where he's going to land on trade. Uh, It's possible that he is actually going to follow through and head down a protectionist road. It's possible that he's going to say, you know what? I'm not going to play by the rules of the WTO anymore. Right now, he seems to be focused on invoking a national security provision which would allow him to protect the steel sector, 
we'll see if he goes down that road. Uh, but right now, I think that the question in my mind is, are we sort of at a, at a holding pattern where he's going to be conventional on security? He's going to break away on things like climate. And now the big question is, what's he going to do on trade? Because if he goes off the reservation on trade, then we're in, I think, a very, very dangerous. What, what would be going off the reservation? If he decides that he is going to take unilateral measures without playing by established WTO rules and either slaps tariffs uh, on, on uh, imports and creates a situation in which other countries feel that they need to reciprocate. Because if that happens, we are then looking at something that potentially is a world of economic nationalism more reminiscent of the 1930s than the 21st century. And how, what is your judgment on that? Do you think that's something he's likely to do? I think he's getting massive pushback from his economic advisors and from Republicans on the Hill. My sense is he has to do something. He needs to do something to say to his base, I told you that I'm going to bring air conditioning factories back to Indiana. Uh, and as a consequence, he's got to do something. Uh, what, what, what that is remains to be seen. Can I interject here? Please. I would argue if there is one go-to move that Donald Trump has excelled at as a politician, it is in finding some sort of symbolic action that he can sell as red meat to his base that when you actually like look at it more carefully realizes is not all that consequential. This isn't to say that he might not do something consequential. I agree with Charles. I think that's certainly an option. It would not shock me, however, if he found some sort of symbolic um, anti-dumping or tariff action that he could announce that actually doesn't disrupt global steel trade as we understand it, but is something that he can sell to his base and that leads to all of these frantic headlines. So I, I would say that the attention that has to be paid is how does Europe um, and Canada and South Korea respond to whatever he winds up doing on steel? Um, if it winds up being a sort of symbolic tit for tat, I'm not saying it, it's, it says something that that's the good case scenario. Or, that, or that's the best case scenario in terms of what could happen. If, on the other hand, and Charles is right, if, on the other hand, it's a more widespread, you know, sort of uh, broad-based increase in, in tariffs, uh, then, yeah, you're seeing the beginnings of a trade war. Well, on that optimistic note, <laughs> please join us next time on the ER. Uh, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas, you can write us, email us at erpodcast at forumpolicy.com. Thank you, and thank you, everyone, for joining us. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? 
This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.